you're seeking to end one of the longest ongoing international disputes in the world, you might naturally want to keep the negotiations under wraps. But achieving that secrecy isn't always easy. Look no farther than negotiations over Iran's nuclear development program and the intense scrutiny they received. And yet, when US President Barack Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro announced that diplomatic relations between their two governments would resume after 54 years, the whole world was blindsided. Nearly a year later, we're just starting to see what this new era of thawed US-Cuban relations might yield. Could it be that a deal negotiated in absolute secrecy might be the thing to finally bring about transparency and open access to information in Cuba? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Marie Sanz, the former chief of the AFP Bureau in Lima, Peru, who's been writing about the changing relations between Cuba and the U.S. as a fall 2015 Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. Marie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So you actually lived in Cuba for, uh, was it five years? For almost five years, at the early 2000s, um, I was uh, the bureau chief there for the Agence France-Presse. And uh, it was a particularly interesting moment because it was um, the years where you had the saga of the Elian Gonzalez, which was a really a big drama between the two countries. Uh, I, I had almost forgotten about Elian Gonzalez, but that was a huge... It was a huge thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and also, it was a, a, a huge thing for the Cuban-American community in Florida who, who was outraged that the little boy was returned to his father in mm-hmm. Cuba. Right. So that was a very you know, compelling story. And uh, so I covered that. There was also um, several international summits. uh, One where, for the first time ever, the King of Spain went to Cuba. Mm -hmm. Um, Before that, I had been going to Cuba several times from Washington because I always, in a way, was interested in Cuba. And I, I am fluent in Spanish, so I was sent also for the first pope's visit in um, 1998 Mm -hmm. and prior to that after the shooting of um, uh, planes that were sent over by some cuban-american militants you can say Mm -hmm. and so and that was a big uh, drama as well which led to the passing of the helms burton law who tightens the embargo that has been in place since uh, 1962 or 61. Now, I think the American conception of Cuba is a little bit distorted by the fact that we've had an embargo so long. Um, Americans haven't been visiting Cuba. Uh, News coming out of Cuba has been sparse at best. What do you think of the popular conception of Cuba in kind of the American psyche? Do you think it reflects reality? Well, I think Cuba has had the, the 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 attraction of a forbidden island because you can't go to a place which is 90 miles away from the American coasts. It's a place where a lot of people prior to the revolution in 1959 used to go 
on holidays, on honeymoons. There were ferries crossing all the time. There were shuttles between Miami and Havana. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of a sudden, that you know, cut off. It was a big place for casinos. Uh, mm -hmm. The the famously the 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 mob, the mafia, you know, was very involved in building all these great uh, hotels, which still exist today. So it was that kind of place, and that stopped in the early '60s. A lot of people left Cuba, particularly the, let's say the the white middle class mm -hmm. of Cuba and decided, you know, to go to Miami to wait out because they didn't think that was going to last. And people said in six months, this Fidel Castro will be, uh, will be out. <laughs> well, that was not the case. And a little bit off. <laughs> a bit off. And, and over 50 years later, you know, very few Americans uh, can travel to Cuba unless they have a special license. Mm -hmm. So it has that sort of image, you know, of nostalgia and um, retro uh, 50s look right. that uh, actually is real because that's how Cuba is. It's very much frozen in time, mm -hmm. very much so. So I know I wasn't alone when uh, I, I actually, I walked into work one day and I looked up at the TV and U.S.-Cuba normalization, it blew me away. Where did this come from? I mean, you, you've been looking at this uh, from a media standpoint. Where did, where did it actually start? Well, it, I think it took really everybody by surprise, including the press, uh, the foreign press in Cuba, where, you know, for the last year, since it seemed nothing really was moving, I think a lot of the foreign press was there sort of waiting for the biological end, you know, of, uh, of Fidel Castro. <laughs> Yeah. And no, absolutely nobody was expecting something like that. And it was, it took, I mean, certainly not only uh, everybody else, but the people who have been working and living in Cuba, it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the simultaneous announcement by, uh, f by Raul Castro from Havana and uh, Barack Obama in Washington, it was totally unexpected. Is this something that was welcomed by the Cuban people? Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. But at the same time, so that was in December, uh, and I went there in July. So people are happy of the possibilities it represents. Also, and particularly in terms of family relations, because some people have really not been able to see their loved ones for years, decades sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that will be facilitated uh, is, is very welcome. But uh, there is also a bit of caution, you know, because some people ask me, is this for real? Do you think this <laughs> is really going to change? And I think it will take time to change, first of all, because the embargo is still in place. Right. Only the, the U.S. Congress can abolish it in a way. So the hope, I think, for the Obama administration is that it could be chipped away as much as possible by executive uh, you know, decisions and all that, but mm -hmm. it is still in place. And, and that's what uh, Raul Castro said in his, uh, in his announcement. He said, we're happy to resume the relations, but let's not forget we have this embargo. And until the embargo is totally lifted, mm -hmm. 
there are still, you know, difficulties ahead. How exactly did the stars align in completely in secret? Uh, well, there are several reasons, and that's a bit what I'm trying to 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 do in my research for this paper here at uh, Schorenstein. Uh, obviously, there have been other attempts at uh, rapprochement with Cuba. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the first one in 1977. He opened up a U.S. interest section in Havana, which is not an embassy, but at least there was like a skeleton presence. Uh, And that was already 20 years after the revolution. Before that, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. So there was that. But that didn't go very well because then you had the Mariel invasion of, uh, you know, a raft people who came thousands of people, thousands who arrived in the U.S. in 1980. So that was a bit, you know, uh, not conducive to uh, to better relations. Mm-hmm. Then um, Clinton also, in his second mandate, wanted to to see if there was any possibility of dialogue. And there was a little beginning but then there was these episodes of these planes going down these pilots being killed and that was that was the backlash of the helms burton law who tightened the embargo even more Mm -hmm. so since then there hasn't been really any opportunity the elian gonzalez was welcome you know the the epilogue the fact the fact that the child was was taken uh, from the hands of the family in Miami to be given to the father was seen very, you know, positively in Cuba, but the Cuban-American uh, community was outraged. Right. And, and that cost the election of Al Gore, one can say, because they, you know, he lost Florida, although we don't know, because remember the counting of the votes, you know, <laughs> we'll never know exactly. Mm-hmm. But it was a big factor in the fact that you know the election was lost also mm-hmm. because the cuban american was so mortified and uh, and uh, apparently you know during that uh, that ending of the saga of elian uh, some of the people in the in the media the television media in uh, in in florida were like in mourning wearing black clothes they were in mourning because elian was set back to his father. I mean, it's, you know, everything is very dramatic when you talk about Cuba. Right, right. So and so this this time, to answer your question after this long digression, is that, um, like for Clinton, the I think the administration considered that this is something that they could do perhaps at the end of the second mandate of President Obama. Mm-hmm. He himself, when he came to power as early as 2009, he said he wanted to have different relations and start dialogues with countries where there were none, like Iran, mm-hmm. like Cuba. And um, so I think he was determined to do that. He couldn't do it in the first mandate. Now this is the end of his second mandate. And the stars align indeed, because it couldn't be done without the Castro brothers. I'm sure that there is a moment where they considered the reality, which is that Raul Castro is 84 years old, Fidel is 89 and out of power since 2006. Mm-hmm. And I think they realize that they have to get into the real world 
And so they were willing to talk and therefore there were these 18 months talks, secret talks, very secret talks. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew about it. Mm -hmm. And the last factor I think that helped a lot was the help of the Pope. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how did he become involved? Well, the Pope, first of all, is the first Latin American Pope. So his sensitivity towards Cuba is uh, obviously different than, let's say, a Polish Pope or a, a German Pope, you know. Um, he himself went to Cuba with the Pope Jean Paul when he first went to Cuba in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, and he was he was asked to to help in a way and i think uh, he was glad to particularly because of this you know latin american sensitivity and also because uh, as you see he's a kind of different pope i mean he has a different presence and uh, and touch so he agreed and how they got to the pope well it's very complicated apparently even in boston some people were involved because it's really also through cardinal o O'Malley, mm -hmm. that um, talked to Obama before he went to the Vatican to see if, uh, or rather Obama talked to the Cardinal to see perhaps and talk with the Pope about, you know, uh, Cuba, if he was willing, and so he was. And, and he'd sent letters, and so, you know, all those factors added to this moment where politically, even if some uh, grumbled, you know, uh, it was not a big deal when he announced the normalization. And it's also because there has been a change of, of generations in the Cuban-American community mm -hmm. in Florida. Now we're going on the third, almost the fourth generation. And they, the revolution for them doesn't mean anything, right. you know. I mean, they want to go to Cuba because it's cool, but not to recuperate the grocery shop of grandpa or the, or the finca or the, you know, the sugar mill or whatever, mm -hmm. the, you know. So now that the door has kind of been inched open, it's not fully open, as you said, have, have there already been differences on the ground? At first, you don't see many differences because, you know, it's a country uh, which it's not, booming you know you don't you don't feel that right. but um well it's more open you do have tourists even american tourists who manage to to get there um you have had the visit of several members of the american government secretary of commerce went uh, well john Kerry went so there is more uh, fluidity in the in the talks the Cubans have agreed to open up the door a little bit about um, the access of Cubans, you know, to, to Internet, uh, which, which are so minimal there. Apparently, you know, according to all the figures, uh, not even 5% of the population of Cuba has access to Internet. Mm. And uh, if you want to have access to internet, you have to pay, uh, you have to go to some place like a hotel. So it, it's, it's, it's very complicated. But uh, after these talks, they have opened um, Wi-Fi free zones in Cuba. And I was in Havana when they um, put a free zone 
uh, around the Habana Libre, which is a big formal Hilton hotel built by the mafia in the 50s. Now it's called Habana Libre. Mm-hmm. And all around the hotel, which is in the downtown Havana, all around on the on the streets, you know, entire block of people sitting on the pavement with their laptops or phones, or, you know, trying to get connected. Mm-hmm. So that was that is a huge change because that communication need is there, you know. Right. And I think it's also a reason there is no way you can stop that wave anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, bloggers uh, there. There are big, uh, well-known bloggers now in Cuba, like mm-hmm. uh, Yoani Sanchez, which was a brave, uh, you know, a Cuban journalist. Um, you cannot be anymore completely isolated. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And so there is that. And of course, there is the families because almost every Cuban has somebody, you know, in, in Miami. Mm-hmm. So the information goes through them. The, the, every Cuban now that travels comes back with uh, computers, televisions and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. so that is really, uh, you know, that is visible. And also the fact that you have more uh, private enterprise at a small level yet but you do have for instance now airbnb in mm-hmm. havana and it's like a big success a big success uh-huh. so a lot of people are you know arranging their houses and all that so they can have to, uh, cuban i mean uh, people coming to to visit havana without going to the hotels uh, the renting of the cars you know the the private restaurants the paladares where it's not just state restaurant and it's better and nicer and one of the biggest criticisms of normalization uh has been that if we open up relations we're essentially accepting the the facts of what this brutal regime has done since the late 1950s do you think that's a valid criticism well, I think on that, uh, one can go to the speech of uh, Barack Obama, you know, for over 50 years have been the, the same policy. Uh, and, and it's true that, you know, there is no freedom of speech. Uh, that has been also in discussion. But I think uh, what uh, President Obama said is that uh, if you continue the same policy and you have the same results it doesn't make any sense and so you know the 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 hope is that through engagement through multiplications of contacts through delegations from both countries there will be inevitably also a change in the in the political system which so far is not open to opposition so I think uh, that point is still valid however I suppose that the American administration considered that you know by closing the door always it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't make it any better and also if you look at other communist countries like Vietnam or China which are not tender with their own oppositions you know there are relations and 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 those are, I mean, China is a huge country and, and there are huge human rights problems in China. Right. Is there hope that more open dialogue, uh, the access to information and the Internet, for instance, as you mentioned, uh, is there hope that all of that might lead to some change in Cuba? Well, it 
it must have a political change also because right now the 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 system in Cuba is all vertical you know it's the uh, the, s the central committee the president so the steps which are already um, in place is that uh, Raul Castro who is 84 uh, will retire in 2018 and he had announced that um, you know, before the before the normalization, so his vice president, who is uh, somebody named uh, Diaz Canel, um, is now vice president. Is young relatively to the old guard because he is in his early fifties. Mm -hmm. So he would become. I mean, if everything goes to plan according to the Cubans, this Diaz Canel will become president in yeah. 2018. But before that, I think they will have to have internal changes, like, for instance, perhaps allow other parties because there is it's a one-party society. Right. And the thing to watch for is the um, the Congress of the party, which is in April 2016. They have, you know, a big, huge Congress of the party where you discuss the changes, the plans for the future and all that. So per that will be the thing to watch to see if they're really going to open I in true, you know, in reality, in political reality, mm -hmm. which would allow, you know, different press, which is not the official press, uh, uh, different parties. I mean, there is, there is a... There is dissent in Cuba, and you have people who have been working in, you know, uh, with uh, keeping track of prisoners, arrests, and all that. I mean, these people are there. Marie Sands is a Fall 2015 Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Marie, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. HKS Policycast is produced by Matt Cadwalder and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter.